actually picked up this jersey on September 20th, lived out a dream that, that with uh, Jeff Pyle and our sons, Sean and Matt, and we'd wanted to see a game in Lambeau together. Uh, Preston, if you would, being a Vikings fan, he may not want to show this. Okay. Went to, went to the museum part, the history museum part in Lambeau Field, which I had not seen before. And if you look at this, you, all that it is, you walk in and it's rather sizable, uh, and it is a timeline. It is effectively a timeline of the entire NFL league from its very beginning. And so you have different teams that have come in, different teams that have moved here and there, but it's, it's an overview, if you will, of the entire NFL. And it's here on this timeline. What struck me with this timeline is you can see this main, if you can, about a, just under halfway, there's a gold line that that's the Packers. And they are on that timeline from the very beginning when football started, obviously, to the present day. They were there at the very beginning as the Packers. Just above them on one of those darker lines that's up about halfway between them and the top, and there's no need to worry about detail, there's another timeline, another team on the timeline called the Chicago Bears. I didn't know they began as the Chicago Staleys. I didn't even know that. But what I found interesting is the Packers and the Bears are the only two teams that were there at the very beginning. And every, in the towns where they're at now and how they are, and everything else has been in flux and gone on. And as I looked at that, that big picture of the entire history of the NFL, and I saw there were only two teams from the very beginning, and you know that those teams, they play each other every so often. There's a, there's a Packers and a Bears game, and every so often they play against each other and their teams intersect. It hit me that is illustrative of our Bibles, actually. Because, you know, when we, look at our, when, we, when we look at our Bible, what do we have? We have an overview, if you will. We have a complete accounting. You can turn that off now, President. That's fine. We have a complete accounting of history, but not just history as historical fact, just as that history pertains specifically to the NFL. We have history that pertains specifically to God and his redemptive work in the world. And what I think is intriguing and where the parallel comes through is that as you go through and you look at the history, you can see a lot of places and a lot of different nations that have come and gone and individuals that have come and gone. When you think about the nations, I mean, here's one that just comes to mind. You think of the Colossus and Daniel. And it references the Medo-Persians and it references the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Romans. And you have these five different, there are five different nations that are referenced in that Colossus that come and go. But there are two lines that start at the very beginning of the story and they go right to the end. And we are looking presently in our study, we're looking at that final end, we're just like the Bears and the Packers play together from time to time. Well, we're looking right now at one of those final games, if you will, where these two intersect as revealed for us in Scripture. 
And we've already considered a few things relative to this, and it takes us a little time to lay it out there, but it's significant and things that we need to know. The first thing that we have noted is that the tribulation will end with the fall of Babylon. Now, we've gone through this, so I'm not going to go into great detail. Religious Babylon falls in chapter 17 when secular Babylon turns on it. Economic Babylon falls in chapter 18 of Revelation. When God judges it in one day, there's a major crash in the economy. And then we notice that after those two things, we get into chapter 19, we have the fall of political Babylon. And that takes place when Christ returns. And he comes on the white horse And he comes as the one who is faithful and true. He comes as the one who has an unknown name, too deep for us even to understand. He comes as the Word of God. He comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he returns. So the tribulation will end with the fall of Babylon. It will it will end with the return of Christ, who, and this is what we want to look at today, who will defeat the evil one. Revelation chapter 20. Verses 1 to 3, we read this. Then I saw an angel. This is after the armies of the world have been decimated. As they had turned themselves against Israel, they have been decimated. And the false prophet and the beast have, and the Antichrist have been taken out of the picture. We read this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And we'll see what happens with that little while in just a little bit. But what I want us to notice here, friends, is that this goes to the very heart of God's redemptive work from the beginning, where these two lines, just like, you know, you go, oh, the Bears and the Packers, they're the only ones there at the very beginning. There are two lines where there from the very beginning were two kingdoms, the kingdom of light, God's kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of darkness, headed up by the evil one himself. And we see them coming to the surface. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Satan, after having, he's the serpent of old, after having deceived Adam and Eve into believing that actually to live in rebellion to God would be better for their lives, it would enhance their lives. And he got them to buy into that, which of course was a lie. And they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now It has afflicted things on mankind ever since. But now we see this tension being set forth between the two kingdoms, very clearly seen. As God says to the serpent, you're going to go on your belly from now on. And he humbles him so that he eats the dust of the ground. And then he says in verse 19, or verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we have this, this now promise that God has made that as this serpent has come in and and tempted man to live in rebellion to God and man followed along with him, that the kingdom which he is seeking to establish will be in conflict with the kingdom of this one who is called the seed of the woman. And God promises that there will be one who comes and they will do head-to-head battle. 
they will, much like the Packers and the Bears have played each other repeatedly through the history of the NFL, they will come into conflict with each other. Now, what in the world is behind all of this? Why do we wind up with two kingdoms? And I am specifically, I have intentionally not given Preston uh, these uh, verses. I want you just to listen. Sometimes it's okay to just listen and just hear what the Scripture says. And let's look where the start of this thing fell apart. Because Satan, the serpent of old, Lucifer, he started out in an incredible place. Notice how Ezekiel describes him. You were the seal of perfection. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And that is this exalted cherub, this one who began as, I believe, the highest of all of God's created beings at that time. And he got so proud of himself, and rather than giving God glory, he made some decisions and decided, you know what, I'm pretty cool. And he made some decisions about what he wanted to do with that coolness. And Isaiah describes those decisions in this way. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground. You have weakened the nations. And last week we saw how he actually calls all of the nations at the end time, just, just prior to this in Revelation 19. He calls all of the nations to bring their, their, all of their artillery and point it at Jerusalem. And that is the place where the final conflagra conflagration takes place. He says, you have weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And it is Satan's goal to establish himself as the one who men must worship. And we see, we've already looked at it, so not going to go back to it, but we've already seen the Scriptures say there's going to come a time during that time of the tribulation, halfway through it, where Satan is going to require, through the Antichrist and the false prophet, is going to require this very thing that he is worshipped as the Most High. That is his goal, and that is the story of these two kingdoms that are in conflict to each other. God, who always was, always will be, never changes, the kingdom of light, the evil one, a created being, magnificent in his creation, magnificent in his being, but who took pride in that and rebelled against God, the only creator God, and decided he was going to rule like him. So Satan's goal is to be that, to defeat God. Satan's plan, we can watch it unfold through the Scriptures. We can see it just like the timeline there. You can see among uh, on that Packers timeline, they hit all these highlights, and they give you specific things went on in this decade or at this time. Well, we can touch on a number of those things. And just think with me. There's no need to have to scratch a lot of things down. Think with me, because most of you will know most of this. In Genesis chapter 3, as we've already seen, Satan draws man into rebellion by telling him, you shall be as gods. 
exactly his sin, that he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be the Most High. So that was Satan's plan. But God announces the seed of the woman who will destroy Satan. Genesis 3.15. We've looked at that one. Genesis chapter 4. We have the story of Cain and Abel. And Abel was the righteous brother. And he brought, a, he brought a sacrifice before the Lord that God received. Cain, inspired by the evil one and warned by God that he had a problem with sin, he had an issue internally that was taking place. Rather than taking, taking responsibility for his own life and reality as to what he needed to do that was right, he considered Abel as to being the problem, so he kills his brother. And that is an attempt by Satan to destroy the lineage because God promised there'd be a seed of the woman who would come and would defeat the evil one. But then at the end of the chapter, God brings Seth into the picture. And if you read it, it's magnificent because there's this one line at the end of the chapter that says, and then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And all is not lost. There's hope that is in there that this promise can still be fulfilled. Genesis chapter 6, Noah is the story. You know that. And, in, and, and what is behind that, the evil one's plan behind that, is, is he's, he corrupted the human lineage. He took of his own demons and had them somehow indwelling in, in, with men. And I believe they were raising a super race, but no longer simply, simply human. And he was going to corrupt the lineage of man so that the deliverer could not come out of this human lineage. But God cleansed the human race from this corruption through the flood. And there was again that glimmer of hope. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And time continues. Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel. He confused the lineage at this point, about what their purpose was. He, he made them believe that it was their purpose to draw, uh, establish a great tower so that they could reach heaven and make a name for themselves when God had said, spread out, spread out, fulfill my purposes. And he confused the lineage. But God accomplished his goal that they would spread out and not live in simple rebellion to, to, his, uh, uh, to his commandment when he confused the languages. And they could no longer work in unity with one another. And then we look at Exodus chapter 1. You know the story in Egypt. And Satan tried to constrain the lineage. Tried to just, just kind of, if you would, watch it die on the vine by what? By killing all the male children. Pharaoh wanted all the male children killed. What's going to happen? This people through whom he was working, if they cannot procreate, well, that story's going to end right there. But God raised up Moses. And we could look at other things in the Old Testament. Consider the New Testament. What do we know? We'll be celebrating this in just a short while. Number one, when we come to the Gospels, what's, what do we learn? We know the story. Now this promised one is on the scene. Satan's not too happy about that, so he raises up a guy by the name of Herod and places it within his heart, what? That he's going to kill the baby. He tells what the wise men say, when you find him, bring me word. I want to worship him too. But the angel comes and says, he didn't want to worship him. 
His issue is he wants to kill him because he doesn't want anyone uh, competing with him. And so they go into Egypt and they hide until Herod is dead. He reaches adulthood. Satan offers him a shortcut to what would one day be his in terms of ruling the nation. He says, fall down and if you would just fall down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And he's trying to shortcut it. He doesn't want to go into battle with him. Jesus said, no thanks. And by the word of God, he withstands him. And then finally, as Christ's ministry is gaining steam and and he's beginning to have a very significant impact. Satan indwells Judas Iscariot. And impresses upon him that this is all a farce and that Jesus isn't doing it right. And Judas sells him for 30 pieces of silver. And he is crucified. And friends, that crucifixion is, as God promised, where the serpent would strike the heel of the, of the seed of the woman. That's the striking because Jesus really is crucified and he really does die and his, his disciples and his followers for three days really are confused and, and distressed in sleepless nights because they don't know what took place here because he's gone all of a sudden. They thought he had the answers because the heel had been struck. But God raises him up and he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father awaiting some 2,000 plus years later when he will come in magnificent glory as we saw in Revelation 19. And after he takes care of all of the armies and he wipes out and uh, uh, the people upon the earth and the birds begin to feed, John says, and then here's what I saw. That old serpent, that old serpent was taken this one who had been find, trying to find ways to defeat Christ was determined to be like the Most High. That old serpent, the, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, he bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal upon him. How magnificent is that, friends? Do we get what is happening there? Genesis 3.15. We are watching this from the very beginning. Two kingdoms that are striving for one another. And it looked like one had, had actually gained the victory when he did not. And now the other establishes his victory. I thought it was so interesting that in, in Revelation 19 when Christ comes, we are given his titles as the one who is faithful and true, the one with a name that no man knew, the one who is the word of God, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. And we have these repetitions describing for us the magnificence of this one who's come out of the heavens, how wonderful he is. And then what I find also so intriguing is the description of what he does when he defeats Satan at this point is this. He's bound. He's cast into the bottomless pit. He is shut up, that is sealed, and then there is a, that is closed, I should say, and then a seal is placed upon that. You know the significance of a seal. The bottom line significance of a seal is the one under the seal is under the authority of the one who places the seal. That is a stamp of authority. This is God's stamp that, guess what, Satan, you just lost. Because you are now bound and you are uh, in that bottomless pit and you are mine. 
You know, when, when Jesus died, what did they do? They put him in the tomb, and the Romans, uh, the, the Jewish people were concerned that they, somebody would steal the body. So the Romans came, and they said, okay, we will seal the tomb. And by placing a seal on the tomb, you could tell whether it had been opened or not. The effect of that seal was this, that any, only Rome has the authority to break this seal, and anybody else who breaks it is uh, uh, open to the death penalty because only Rome has that authority. My point being the authority part there, friends. Satan is put under Christ's authority, and he is forced to be bound up for the thousand years, and this is where uh, his head is being crushed. Uh, there is an ultimate thing that will happen, but I believe it is right here. That ceiling placed upon him is where he crushes his head and says, you're done. You, you no longer are allowed to do what you want to do. And where there was four descriptions of the magnificence of Christ, there's four descriptions as to what he did. Bound him, cast him, shut him up, and sealed him. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And he cannot deceive the nations anymore at that point. It won't happen. How cool is that for the people who will live at that time? You see, they're not going to have to live with this thing of, of the one who, who confuses the nations. Josh, if you guys would come up here at this point, buddy. How cool will it be to not have to live with a lie that says God doesn't have our best interests at heart? How cool will it be that people are no longer being tempted to become superior to God and live in rebellion to Him? How cool will it be that people are not going to constantly hear from the evil one whispered into their ear, you're not enough, you're not good enough, you'll never be enough, you'll always be a failure. That voice will not be there speaking into the hearts of people. Back in the time of the Reformation, a magnificent hymn was penned by, by Martin Luther called, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And the whole point of this, I want you to listen to it as we sing it together. Will you listen and pay attention to the words? Because effectively what it says is this. Yes, on a day-to-day -day basis, we struggle against the evil one. He is real and he seeks to destroy us. But we have one who intercedes on our behalf. And so we don't try and defeat him on our own. Instead, we allow Christ, who will defeat him ultimately, who is able to defeat him now, to be our defense against the evil one. Oh, friends, will you please stand and will you please sing this? Sing it with great voice. 151, A Mighty Fortress.
You notice that last line, friends. His kingdom is forever. We can trace the two kingdoms from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. Only one will rule supreme. How wonderful for the people, as we have mentioned, who will not have to deal with him for a thousand years as he is bound up, as him constantly bringing affliction into their being. That's wonderful. Right now, we still live in a time when he has the chance and the opportunity to make himself known and continue to confuse and to confound the nations. But will you notice this one who will be defeated? Will you notice what we're told about him? We're told by Peter to resist the devil and he will flee from you. We're told by John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that is the, the spirit of the evil one that is in the world. We're told by Paul that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And so put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand. We do not need to live in defeat, friends, because this one, this one will ultimately be defeated and the same one who will defeat him when he comes out of the sky as King of kings and Lord of lords is today ministering to us, desiring to give us victory that we might not constantly let him rule over us. But Christ alone is the one we serve supreme. Father, thank you for the magnificent promise that there is an eternal kingdom, that Satan is going to lose this battle because the King of kings and Lord of lords is going to, is going to cast him down, going to bind him, going to close up the bottomless pit, is going to pit and going to put a seal on him. Oh, Lord, we know his end. May we, as we are in the battle daily with him, may we indeed call upon you by the power of your Spirit, by the person of Jesus Christ, by the power of your word, Father, to continually seek you that he might not defeat us today, this week, this month, Lord. Thank you that the victory is ours. Give us wisdom and the, and the desire and the inclination to claim it, to seek it, to live it, Lord. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.